0: Well, good evening, everybody, and thank you very much for coming to this LSE q program public lecture. We are delighted to welcome to the LSE today Dr. Christopher Davidson from Durham University, a reader in the School of Government International Affairs for a very timely event covering the Gulf monarchies and future trends, and coming just two days after the unprecedented demonstrations in Kuwait and after a year I think in which we've seen escalating tensions and protests across the region a a series of arrests in the United Arab Emirates and the closure of civil societies and real limits on freedom of association and freedom of speech the uh, curtailment of the uprising in Bahrain its crushing last year Uh, continuing large-scale protests in part of Saudi Arabia and uh, in Oman as well, unprecedented public criticism of the person of the uh, Sultan himself. So it's, it's a very interesting and very timely event. The uh, event is also celebrating the launch of Chris's book, After the Sheikhs, The coming Collapse of the Gulf Oil Monarchies, in which he makes a provocative but very compelling argument that some of the pillars of sustainability that have served social and political stability for so long are not just breaking down, but are going to become increasingly untenable as time goes on. So I think we're going to be treated tonight to a very uh, thorough uh, discussion on why this might be so. And the title of today's talk is After the Arab Spring, the Gulf Monarchies in an Age of Uncertainty. Please join me in welcoming Chris Davidson.
1: Many thanks, Christian. Um, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here at the London School of Economics. I think I've done a few of these lectures now, but this is by far the biggest audience. Um, It's quite fitting in many ways that I'm speaking about this book uh, after the shakes here at LSE because one of the original germs of the idea came to me courtesy of a certain LSE professor, sadly, a late LSE professor who I had the privilege of meeting, but unfortunately only once, just for a few days. Back in summer 2009, um, I went out to uh, Barcelona to meet uh, Fred Halliday. and I remember it was the time when I'd just published my book on Abu Dhabi. And I walked into the room, he'd invited me to give a little talk on Dubai, Abu Dhabi, etc., some of my earlier works. The very first thing he said to me before, take a seat or how are you, was... Uh, so who pays you, Abu Dhabi or Dubai? And I said to him, oh, I think you've misunderstood. Have you got to the last chapter of the Abu Dhabi book? And he confessed, no, I haven't. I said, okay, read to the very end and then you'll work out it's neither. And the look of Puzzle on his face stayed with him for the rest of the evening. Then later on in the evening at the dinner, he came up to me and he said, how sustainable are these states really? And bear in mind, this was a good couple of years before uh, any rumblings of Arab Spring or certainly what happened in Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, Libya etc. So he put, he put very much this um, germ of an idea into my head that I could perhaps try to write some kind of survey text looking at the various internal and external pressures that I believed were already building up in the Gulf monarchies. So I duly began the book uh, from a very small office on the other side of the world. I was temporarily based at Kyoto University in Japan, uh, and I got away with doing the research on it. I I got got down to the work. Um, As the the years slipped by and as it got to to December 2010 and uh, the Arab world began to uh, erupt into its most um, uh, violent and uh, optimistic and uh, joy and sadness period it's had for many decades. The weighting of my book started to change really from being one looking at the sustainability of the economic and political systems of the Gulf monarchies to what effect a catalyst could have from the external region onto uh, onto these Gulf monarchies. So the end product which thankfully came out just today and the I think Christian got to see a copy of the book before I did because it arrived just a few hours ago. Uh, The final product we have really here is uh, is built on these two pillars, looking at how both the uh, internal pressures and external pressures have been influencing the the region. Um, What the book really does, uh, at least for the first few chapters, uh, is uh, an experiment in reverse engineering. It begins by looking at the various explanations for survival of these Gulf monarchies, which are, after all, um, quite unique in in many ways. Uh, We have, essentially, very traditional, unreformed political systems uh, in command of increasingly liberalizing economies, enjoying high growth rates, at least for the most part, over the past few decades but we haven't seen serious demands for political reform until recently. So how has that been explained over the years? Well, the first part of the book really looks at the earlier uh, resistance based by these Gulf monarchies, these sheikhs, sultans, emirs, etc., all these unelected uh, rulers, these autocrats. It looks really at how a lot of the scholarship back in the 90s and 50, 1950s and 60s that was addressing this region was very much looking at this through a lens of Arab nationalism. Of course, we'd had sweeping revolutions back then in many parts of the Arab world. Uh, We'd had uh, calls for Arab nationalism, pan-Arabism. That had certainly spread to the Gulf monarchies. Uh, We had pamphlets, propaganda, Cairo radio broadcasting to to the young people in the Gulf states. People were becoming increasingly literate. They were able to read newspapers printed in Damascus, etc., But this really didn't have much impact for several reasons. In many ways, it was the timing of Arab nationalism was all wrong for the Gulf monarchies. We had, really, populations on the cusp of this enormous oil boom. People who'd been previously busy getting involved in activism because there were indigenous national fronts, especially in Kuwait, in Manama in present-day Bahrain, and uh, in Dubai, and Sharjah, in present-day United Arab Emirates. The activism was there, but people quickly got busy with making money, with the business empires that were being set up, the importing of luxury goods, the construction boom that came with the oil industry, etc. Added to that, added to people becoming busier and more interested in business and economy, we also had the failings of Arab nationalism by the end of the 1960s as well. We had the veneer starting to rub off after the 1967 defeat, and we only had one more successful Arab Nationalist Revolution, that of Gaddafi's in in King Idris's Libya, hardly the best example of a a great ruler. We have um, plenty of explanations then that moved on from the 1960s looking at the Gulf monarchies that really tried to argue okay Arab nationalism hasn't worked but what else might work? We had various um, Arguments being made, including Fred Halliday's own work, Arabian Without Sultans, published in the 1970s, that really tried to to state that in the short term, the Gulf monarchy's most serious threat, and one that may likely topple them, is some kind of sweeping socialist or communist movement, uh, likely supported by USSR or China. Uh, Gulf monarchies, uh, very much in the context of the Cold War during this period. Much scholarship was dedicated to this, Uh, especially after the wake of the Dufar Rebellion in southern Oman, where we had a seemingly oppressed people rising up, in particular rising up against a clearly and openly British-backed ruler, uh, the Sultan of Muscat, and Britain, of course, halfway through this conflict, even engineered the overthrow of that sultan and replaced him with his son. Um, Halliday really, I suppose to boil down his arguments, um, really believed that the region's population... Uh, the exploitation of the region's population in these countries, spreading from Oman perhaps into Saudi Arabia, then the smaller Gulf monarchies, would inevitably lead to some kind of social conflict and eventually political change. In parallel to that, certainly by the mid-60s and even into the 1970s, a significant body of literature was also building up, which this book looks at too, a body of literature by social scientists working on other parts of the developing world, Looking at how various modernizing forces, including urbanization, improving education and literacy, access to mass communications, etc., would inevitably lead to new social groupings for- forming, whether they're a modern class, a middle class, whatever you want to call it, but ultimately some kind of social grouping that would be unwilling to live by the old rules of the game. In other words, unelected authoritarian leaders. Autocrats supported by foreign powers, uh, etc. Perhaps, um, perhaps most symbolic of this literature, after the works of uh, uh, Seymour Martin Lipset, Daniel Lerner, uh, Karl Deutsch, etc., his social mobilisation theory, we started to have some works that did try and touch upon the Gulf monarchies, or at least the idea of traditional monarchies succumbing to these modernising forces. The one that always sticks in my mind from all the way back at the time when I was doing my PhD more than a decade ago, um, was, was Samuel Huntington's 1968 book, uh, Political Order in uh, Changing Societies, and of course it's very uh, provocatively titled chapter, The King's Dilemma. Really in The King's Dilemma, we had this argument being made that modernization uh, and the new uh, uh, the political change which will result from these new groupings is not inevitable and it's not going to be smooth. Just because you've got an educated class, just because you've got access to to, uh, uh, literature, newspapers, TV, etc., that in itself isn't going to be enough to facilitate the political change. Because the autocrats will resist it, they'll find ways of resisting it. They'll either repress people more, they'll allow for some uh, coexistence in the political system, perhaps have an elected prime minister, perhaps have some legal, rational government, etc., But ultimately, Huntington did believe it would happen sooner or later. It just might take a little bit longer than the American political scientists of the 50s and 60s were were arguing. In particular, he argued that in many ways, the Gulf monarchies, uh, or at least traditional monarchies in that part of the world, were going to be a great case study or example of this, because they were uh, right on the verge of enormous socioeconomic development. The oil revenues coming in, the skyscrapers being built, uh, schools being built, universities even being founded in many of these countries by then. In fact, every gulf monarchy had a university by the time he wrote the book. So really, in many ways, these should, these should have been his classic uh, uh, example par excellence of, uh, of modernization finally taking effect. Um, in many ways though, neither Huntington or Halliday, if we pick those two, were, were correct, because, in my view, at least this book's thesis, neither a proletariat formed in the Gulf monarchies, despite something at least on the surface looking like a capitalist mode of production. Equally neither did a middle class form in the Gulf monarchies either. No bourgeoisie really formed, despite all of this socio economic development, education, urbanisation. Uh, etc so really neither quite, neither quite got it right um, the book really moves on to looking at the various explanations that might have got it right and that can help shape our understanding of the survival of Gulf monarchies today and as I mentioned at the beginning if we can reverse engineer this we can understand the pillars of legitimacy and survival that Gulf monarchies have rested on up until now and thus that will help us demystify what, I'm sure you'll agree, is a very mysterious part of the world. Uh, it will also help us understand where the chinks in the armour are, where the cracks are appearing are, and thus mean that any belief in political change around the corner shouldn't be such a greater shock to us after all. If by the end of the book, if you've soldiered all the way down to the final chapter, you think, hang on a moment, all those pillars are eroding. There's almost nothing left under the surface anymore." So, what were these explanations that did seem to work? Well, my favourite, of course, is the political economy uh, explanation. If we go all the way back to Karl Marx back in the 19th century, we have this thesis that some kind of, um, some kind of very decadent uh, uh, capitalist class will form on the basis of profit income. Back then, he was thinking in terms of landlordism, people who can rent out properties. This, uh, this idea of a rent class, some kind of rent class, which would inevitably resist meaningful political change because the status quo served their interests better, even though on the surface they were enjoying education, accepting modernizing forces, and so on, this rent class would actually ultimately resist meaningful reform. Um, His ideas taken forward in the 20th century, the idea of rentierism rentierism was applied to different parts of the world, in some cases incorrectly in my view, especially with regard to Europe, a bit more accurately with regards to Iran, some of the writings in the 1970s, especially because Iran by this stage was becoming an oil and gas producer, so the Shah was starting to collect rent from oil and gas. Um, What all of these works were really looking at, and perhaps culminating in uh, Beblawi's essay in the 1980s on the the rentier state as applied to the Arab world, what they all were really sort of aiming at was this idea that some kind of ruling rentier class can form in countries where wealth is coming to them, but they're not actually involved in the wealth creation process uh, themselves, at least not directly. So, there's a source of revenue coming to the ruling class which allows them to bypass their bourgeoisie and certainly any proletariat. They don't require tax, they don't really require any deal being struck with the rest of the population. And if you can get a situation where you're receiving this rent and then able to distribute it to your population you can, as the theory goes, buy some kind of political acquiescence from the population. They're part of a deal with you the wealth is coming to the top rather than ground up uh, because the mass of the population are not involved in creating the wealth and that's that's them being recycled back into the population inevitable result of that is very little demand for uh, meaningful uh, political change you might ask yourself though surely there's more to rentier state theory as applied to the Gulf states than that and I would say yes there is the book goes into a bit more depth looking at new forms of rentierism in the Gulf states We know now that we can't look at the Gulf states collectively as one bunch of countries. They're very different. They have different population sizes. They have different sizes of oil and gas reserves. The ability of their rulers to harness this rent and then distribute it to their people is very different depending on which country you go to. Bahrain, very poor. Oman will soon become a net oil and gas importer. Saudi Arabia has a very substantial indigenous population of dozens of millions now so the per capita wealth distribution is much lower. So one appreciates they're all quite quite different. But what we've seen is a fascinating dynamic where as a Gulf monarchy realises its old source of rentier wealth is waning, it tries to find new sources of rentier wealth, all the while trying to make sure that its national population, its citizenry, this rentier class that gives its political acquiescence, is kept away from the meaningful wealth creation. So we have, uh, we have as, as Marx would be proud, uh, landlordism in, in Dubai with real estate sectors. Nationals are uh, allocated patches of land, they build a building, rent it out. We have uh, a sponsorship system, of course, in the Gulf states for many years, particularly in those that have been commercial hubs or where there's trade taking place. Foreigners want to come and take part in the oil booms or the booms of these cities. They find they have to have a local partner, a national uh, system who who will essentially inherit a share of the profit uh, income without necessarily being involved in the the wealth creation process. That's a gross generalization. Of course, there are many exceptions to that. But as a rule of thumb, again, a political acquiescence has been maintained. Um, Some other explanations. Uh, Further to this political uh, economy argument about rent wealth, uh, we've had many efforts to try and uh, show how... um, uh, Modernising forces in the Gulf monarchies have been harnessed as opportunities rather than threats, as Lipset, Lerner, Deutsch, Huntington, etc., Ingelhart, more recently, may, may perceive them. So, if a new force is coming along, uh, the government, the regime, can actually use that uh, to its benefit. You control the newspapers, you control the education uh, syllabus. You, uh, more recently, you can monitor the internet, read people's emails. Create ruler websites, you can use these forces to your own uh, to your own advantage, uh, also connected to that, uh, combining this idea of mod- modernity and, and tradition, uh, we have uh, uh, cults of personality being perpetuated using newspapers and internet and TV. We have religion too another another traditional source of authority. Uh, we also have this uh, This uh, uh, fantastic example in the Gulf Monarchies of uh, of, of neo-patriarchal government as as, uh, Sharabi would have have expected to see. Um, Writing in the 80s, he argued that many Arab governments would really try to distort meaningful political change by adding a veneer of seemingly new government to traditional patriarchal government underneath. I think the Gulf Monarchies are a great example of this where we have references to presidents, councils, ministries, chambers, etc. But do they really mean anything when the king can pick up the phone and get something done, or issue a decree and have it done, done autocratically? Not very much. But nonetheless, it provides, provides this veneer of modernity to the population, and a certain legitimacy comes, uh, comes with that, uh, of course. Um, Bringing uh, bringing together in many ways these explanations for survival based on the political economy of the region and, let's say, the political culture of the region, we also have this idea of some kind of social contract forming between uh, the rulers of the Gulf states and the people of the Gulf states, the citizens of the Gulf states. We have this idea, perhaps, that um, uh, Rousseau or, or Locke, for example, would have argued that some kind of deal is struck between whoever's in charge, whoever's the government, and the people. And this deal can have economic components. It can have other sources of legitimacy, too. The ruler has to be a good good guy. He has to have personal resources. Uh, He also has to have the trappings of modern government. He has to have religious credentials, too, perhaps. He has to demonstrate some kind of lineage from tribes and so on. Uh, Hobbes, uh, perhaps uh, an even better example, given that, at least in my understanding, uh, monarchy was perfectly fine by by Hobbes, less so with Rousseau and and Locke, of course. Uh, One of the best um, uh, uh, recent um, incarnations of this social contract, as applied to the Middle East, is perhaps the work of uh, Mehran Kamrava, uh, American political scientist who, of course, is now based at uh, Georgetown out in uh, the Emirate of Qatar. Uh, he, really, he really tried to show that in all of the Gulf states you do have some kind of ruling bargain in place. The ruler lays out his various sources of legitimacy in this unspoken, unwritten deal and in return the people agree not to really press for meaningful political change. The people will press a little and the ruler will play a game. The ruler will allow a little top-down reform, a half-elected Parliament, uh, a constitution that's never enforced—you you get the picture. Play, play this game for many, for many uh, years in the region, but Camrava would see this is very much part of the survival of these, uh, of these very unusual states. You will, of course, in this book, encounter some other explanations that are being put forward for the survival of these monarchies. I personally don't really agree with them. I kind of cluster them together as what I call reorientalising strategies in the Gulf. It's in the Gulf rulers' interest to make you believe. It's Eastern, it's different to the West, it's different to international norms. It can voluntarily opt out of international protocols and conventions as a result of this. Uh, Explanations based on tribal culture, politics, uh, religion, something about Islam, something about about desert people, etc., Uh, Bedouin history, whatever you want to to, to throw at the argument. Uh, It's why uh, uh, democracy uh, has often been vilified in the region. Poor poor little Kuwait for many years has always been used as the classic perfect counterexample by the other Gulf monarchs. Whenever anything goes wrong in Kuwait, you can be sure there'll be op-eds appearing in the state-owned newspapers in all the other Gulf states the next day saying, is this really what you want? Because this is a Western-imported political ideal that's fundamentally incompatible with the political culture of this Oriental region. Uh, We even have rulers of some of the Gulf states writing these pieces themselves, or at least their their secretaries do. Um, In some ways, uh, one one very uh, very, uh, seminal text on on, on this subject, which is well worth a read, would be Michael Herb's uh, All in the Family, which which in many ways tries to, to lessen the blow of the political economy argument and to try to tell us Uh, it's less really about the rent that the rulers can distribute to people and more about the institution of a dynastic monarchy that's developed and I certainly see his point and many parts of the book touch on this where the ruling families of themselves have become almost proto-institutions like giant single political parties Uh, the ruling family of Saudi Arabia of course thousands upon thousands of princes all have a vested interest in the status quo as Marx would tell us Uh, Thus, when one of this peculiar elite class steps out of line, the rest will bandwagon against the black sheep. And in general, we see this mentality throughout the Gulf monarchies, even down to the lowest ranks, as it were, of the citizens, where if anybody steps out of line, everyone else stands to lose because they're interested in the status quo. It's why we have uh, families denouncing relatives who have been put in Prison for, for political crimes, as has been happening, of course, over the last year. Heads of tribes are being called to rulers' palaces. I think it happened the other day in Kuwait. It certainly happened in the United Arab Emirates last year. So, essentially, this traditional political link that the ruler relies upon to put pressure on the leader of a tribe, more or less saying, Please rein in this young dissident you've got. He's He's uh, talking about things which are dangerous to the integrity of the state and its status quo. Everyone has a decent life here. It might not be perfect. You might not have personal freedoms. You might not have the right to form civil society associations, trade unions, anything else. But people, by and large, have it quite good compared to the rest of the developing world. So you tell your younger relative to keep his mouth shut, otherwise he's going into, uh, otherwise he's going into prison. This black sheep strategy has been phenomenally successful The most sinister element of it tends to be when a hapless dissident is hauled into the police station. He's often hauled in along with some relatives who are held in a room next door to him, uh, just for the police to emphasize we know exactly who your family are, Uh, thus you don't want your entire family or even tribe's name to get get blacklisted somehow. So we have plenty of these uh, alternative explanations for survival uh, too. Going to the actual uh, contents of the book itself, as we move away from the theoretical framework, uh, you'll hopefully, of course, have a chance to to read it uh, page to page, so I won't go into too much depth. But really, the first uh, substantive chapter sets the scene here, really trying to demonstrate how, how the different Gulf monarchies have had slightly different state formation processes. We've had, of course, largely autonomous Saudi Arabia founded on a Religious military alliance, uh, the smaller Gulf monarchies in treaty relationships with the British Empire, but basically secular entities. So they've all had slightly different uh, uh, state formation, which helps us understand their slightly different ruling bargain or package of components in their social contract. One ruler, for whatever reason, in his country might be able to rely on religious credentials. Another ruler, because of a small population and abundant natural resources, might be able to rely on the rent argument. It just depends on each given state. So this chapter really tries to, to show how they're all different. But, as you guess, it brings it back in the next chapter to show how in many ways they're all the same. If we keep in our, idea, uh, our, in our, our mind the idea that this ruling bargain is highly dynamic, when a particular legitimacy source is reduced, because you have an unpopular ruler you're running out of gas whatever else you find another le- le- legitimacy resource and put effort behind building that one up constantly in a state of flux and the Gulf molecules have been incredibly successful over the years at creating these, uh, these dynamics. Obviously the book looks in depth at the various mechanisms that have been used to distribute wealth to the people uh, these, these range of course from uh, uh, full-blown villas and retirement ages of 35 in Qatar, for example, which has a tiny national population and, and blessed with enormous amount of uh, uh, natural gas. Uh, free education in many states, free hospitals, health care, etc. Great infrastructure as well, no taxation. So a highly, um, a highly beneficial deal to people uh, from the wealth they've received. And in some of the wealthier Gulf states, if you try and work it out over the course of uh, someone's working life, Um, uh, millions of pounds worth of wealth will ultimately be transferred from the government to that citizen. Question of jobs as well, Uh, up until recently many Gulf states, at least the wealthy ones, could rely on uh, providing public sector uh, employment to their nationals. I won't go into too much depth about that, but as you can imagine, there's a certain pathology offering guaranteed public sector uh, employment to all of your nationals and a certain lack of motivation which results from that if you know you're going to get it anyway. Um, Further to uh, the distribution of wealth, very closely connected to this, the argument is made that you can't distribute this wealth to everyone in your country. You have to be very careful that your citizenry, your national elite, this rentier class, remains as distinct and undiluted as possible. After all, you can't go having a melting pot develop in an oil rich uh, state that's trying to distribute these economic benefits to its citizens you don't want that elite to become too too vague and large, you have to keep it as pure as possible marriage uh, strictly enforced at least up until recently for most uh, female Gulf nationals could only really marry uh, Gulf, uh, Gulf nationals, quite difficult to marry uh, non-Gulf nationals even if they were Arab, even if they were Muslim, uh, etc. Uh, we have the, the question of national dress as well, very controversial topic, I don't want to get into it. Uh, the book tries to make the argument, hopefully quite effectively, that it's not really a national dress, it's not really a historic dress, but more a uniform of uh, privilege and distinction as a, a rent-receiving uh, class. Especially in the smaller Gulf monarchies, and especially in those communities which are most loyal to the, uh, to the ruling elites. Um, if you look at uh, older photos of, of the region, you'll see a variety of colors of dishdash uh, uh, headdress, etc., being worn. Now it's fairly uniform, especially in the wealthiest Gulf states, and I think there's a reason, uh, reason for that. Um, you may be thinking, but what about the millions of expatriates in the Gulf monarchies? Aren't they a threat to the status quo? Surely you have millions of poorly paid Bangladeshi laborers housed in camps or millions of Lebanese or Syrians or Egyptians or or hundreds of thousands of Western nationals working in the Gulf states. Surely they'd start to press for political change. Well, the answer is no. The book makes the argument that in many ways it's in the interest of autocratic rulers in this uh, this rentier uh, uh, paradigm to actually have as many expats as possible So it's why, for example, ruler of Dubai years back and his government kept making making statements that they were trying to do something about the huge number of expats in the country. But if you think about it, if you manage to get your city-state emirate to a population of 95% foreigners, think of what brought (coughs) those foreigners there. They haven't been offered a deal of citizenship. The vast majority of expats who come and work in the Gulf are never going to be naturalized, and they know it. Even people who've been there 20, 30 years, kids born and brought up there, no guarantee of naturalisation. In fact, it remains quite rare. In that sense, these are not melting pot societies like New York, London, Paris, etc. You go there to make money and ultimately you retire to your home country. In that context, you're there to smoothly create wealth and an autocracy which guarantees the status quo and law and order is, as I'm sure you'll appreciate, uh, very, much in your, uh, very much in your interests. Um, so the citizenry becomes smaller and smaller as a proportion of the entire uh, residential population and the only ones who really should be caring about politics. They get outnumbered, quite simply. Um, we have, of course, expatriates uh, increasingly working in military and security and police. I'll talk about that a little bit later in the Q&A, perhaps. We have expats working in key uh, key advisory roles, uh, political advisory roles. We have some expats from uh, poorer, uh, less stable countries who are naturalized, and thus they they become in many ways the most loyal subjects of the rulers one can possibly uh, imagine. And no coincidence that very often they have uh, some of the most uh, repressive roles in these states, involved in uh, state security, censorship, and so on. Um, A little bit more about the domestic survival strategies in this book. Uh, Quite a lot of attention is paid to the idea of 21st century uh, cults of personality. How uh, many of these rulers have tried to portray themselves and their close family relatives as uh, particularly worthy of being uh, rulers. Uh, We have an ancient concept here, of course. We have charisma involved. uh, Even a bit of the warrior syndrome. We have pictures of Uh, crown princes dressed with Rambo with daggers stuck in their belt and holding pistols on their websites looking like tough guys we have pictures of crown princes and uh, and rulers uh, uh, appearing giving poetry competitions recited in the local dialect Uh, we have uh, sporting prowess, horse riding endurance medals won etc. so many I can't possibly mention it in the lecture now one of my favourites was one of the crown princes appearing in a rap video so he's cool and uh, familiar with the youth of the, of the country. Highly effective. I remember the university I used to work at, all the girls on their laptop computers, their wallpaper on the screen was not of pop stars or actors or movie stars or anything like that. It was of young shapes, their celebrities, cults of personality. Uh, so we have uh, some rulers who've taken this to, uh, to an incredible extent. They seem, to, uh, uh, they seem to see it as a very uh, sound strategy to have their... Their portrait uh, plastered all all over the country. Others are a little bit more discreet about this. Uh, Others try to picture themselves along with their crown prince or another key relative. Uh, Abu Dhabi is a great example at the moment where we have essentially rulers who lack charisma, but the previous ruler, their father, had a lot of charisma, was handsome, was very well liked, but he died eight years ago. But his picture is still featured extremely prominently in that country, and there's a very good reason for that. In some cases, his picture is bigger than the, than the living rulers. Uh, we have the argument about heritage and history as well. The Gulf monarchies, those can, that can afford it, have spent uh, heavily on uh, reminding the population of where the ruling family has come from, uh, reminding of them of their traditional past, the tribal history. Uh, uh, connected to that, uh, the states have spent a lot on, on religious resources too, building lavish mosques there are some incredible examples uh, carefully controlling who can preach in the mosque it varies country to country some have a much tighter grip on this than than, than, uh, than others of course uh, but the bottom line is the same the rulers need to demonstrate that they uh, have religious credentials as well as anything else uh, connected to this spending program on heritage history religion and even the cults of personality if we trace our mind all the way back to that early rentier literature, there are some little footnotes that really haven't been publicised as much as they should have been back at the time. That's to say, the rentier wealth is not just spent on the citizens, but the largesse that the state suddenly has can also be used to essentially buy civil society. It can patronise all groups, all societies, build them buildings, build them museums, build them mosques, the religious establishment is co-opted, Etc. So rent your wealth can be used uh, for uh, uh, organization as well as transferring wealth to the uh, individual also. Finally on this list you may be puzzled why environmental credentials uh, is, is, uh, is here. Uh, well this is a couple of innovative examples especially in uh, Qatar and Abu Dhabi one can say of uh, rulers and their governments trying to get on board with the whole future energy green energy thing. That might sound slightly ironic, given that these are two of the biggest hydrocarbon producers in the world, and four-wheel drive cars and per capita carbon footprints probably quite scary. Nonetheless, we've had some incredibly fascinating and highly original projects have developed in these countries. Again, while I think they've done a lot of good for the region, I think we we must also not forget the political capital that comes with this very positive uh, newspaper headlines etc are often associated with the various rulers that have been behind these uh, uh, projects if you're interested in that there's a book coming out next month by uh, Marie Luomi on the politics of climate change in the Gulf states which looks at this uh, hitherto unexplained uh, uh, topic this book however moving on also looks at survival through the the lens of the external matters, too. Uh, I don't have much time today, so I'm not going to talk too much about this. But to cut a long story short, we have the Gulf monarchies essentially externalising their largesse, not only distributing wealth to their own citizens, not only providing a good, stable environment for expats, but also trying to to, uh, push some of this money out to more beleaguered Arab and Muslim states and broader Muslim states elsewhere in the world trying to really buy good headlines wherever they can, good relations with Muslim and Arab, uh, Muslim and Arab, Arab countries. Uh, examples ranging from East Africa, of course, Somalia is a very good one, even into Europe where we find Muslim populations. In, uh, in Kosovo, for example, all the way across into Malaysia, Ban- uh, Bangladesh, uh, Indonesia, etc. We have the Gulf monarchies also uh, trying to uh, become very active neutrals uh, in the last few years. Uh, Uh, There was a period about six or seven years ago where almost uh, every time there was a regional conflict, every Gulf monarchy would be falling over itself to try and be the broker of the peace deal. They'd all be hosting a conference on Gaza or Hezbollah or Lebanon war or or, or Eritrea or whatever else. Qatar, I think, very much got the lead on that and was able to position itself as the ultimate active neutral in the region. Uh, Again, this has cost a lot of time and resources. The rentier states have that. Uh, soft power uh, in many ways uh, the gulf monarchies uh, can be seen as the quintessential brokers of soft power Joseph Nye's uh, soft power uh, theory uh, they've used their money to great effect to uh, carefully quietly and in some cases silently build influence in, in the west the countries which they've relied on for military protection uh, for many years uh, since the Eisenhower doctrine in 1957 and of course Britain's departure from the region in 1971 um, By making strategic investments in the West, uh, not just investments by sovereign wealth funds that are there to save up for a rainy day, which is certainly the case for many of the Gulf states, they have wealth overseas in case the oil industry falters, but also what I would call strategic headline grabbing investments as well, to remind governments in those countries and their citizens, firstly, that the Gulf monarchies exist, secondly, That uh, should anything happen, the West should come to their protection, just like Kuwait in 1991. Uh, Thirdly, that these are basically good guys. What do I mean by these strategic investments? They're generally lost leaders. Uh, You buy a football club. I don't think anyone ever makes money out of buying a football club. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain, Qatar, uh, Manchester City, Abu Dhabi. Is it Dubai now interested in Leeds United? I'm not sure why. Why? Uh, but uh, plenty plenty of examples of it London Eye, Madame Tussauds plenty in America, Chrysler Building you know that shiny skyscraper that's always on panoramas of Manhattan Island so things to remind populations in these powerful countries that the Gulf monarchies are, are good guys, need protecting and are good, uh, good reliable trade partners. You might be wondering why on earth do I have development assistance connected to soft power in the west as well surely development assistance should be for poorer Arab and Muslim countries on the doorstep well, you'd be surprised. In the last few years, the Gulf monarchies have actually been getting involved in, in, in making strategic investments in poor parts of Western countries to grab some headlines too. Manchester City, it's not just a football club, it's also an urban regeneration project of one of the poorest urban areas in the United Kingdom. Uh, Qatar uh, investing, trying to rebuild the, uh, the troubled uh, Bonlieu, sorry my French accent, Bonlieu districts on the outskirts of Paris, Qatari money, very thankful uh, partners in the West. Connected to that, soft power through cultural institutions as well. Gulf monarchies making strategic investments in Western cultural foundations, museums, art galleries, financing uh, refurbishment of part of the Louvre, uh, um, various chateaus in France as well have been rebuilt. Probably something to do with the British Museum, I don't know quite what. I'm sure you know many other examples in the audience. Uh, Further to that, we have the soft power extended into universities and research centres in the Western powers as well. A couple of reasons behind this. Uh, Firstly, just like the cultural institutions and the other strategic investments, to keep reminding the Western governments of their beneficial relations with the Gulf. Also, of course, to really kind of have a, have a handle on the research that's being done in these universities and research centres. It's no coincidence in Britain and America that where, where, wherever you find leading clusters of academics that work on the Middle East or the Arab world or Islam, you're never more than half a step away from gulf funding of some description. It's quite prevalent in the United States, but, not that it's a good reason but, but in the United States you have certain counter-checks to that, in particular the Israeli lobby... Uh, campus watch, etc. Not particularly wholesome, but has tended to keep in check Gulf funding. A few endowed chairs have been handed back by Harvard, etc., on the grounds of lack of human rights in these countries. Um, it's, it's, uh, It's in Britain really that we can see the soft underbelly of this, where we don't have any other lobby really interested or committed in checking the flow of Gulf investments in our universities. Uh, we're speaking here in Clement House, but we could have easily been over in the new academic building in the Sheikh Zayed Theatre. Uh, I would have made a live request to LSE to rename it the Fred Halliday Theatre, but maybe maybe someday. Durham University, my own institution, my office is in a building, uh, paid for and built by the rule of Sharjah. There's also a Kuwaiti-funded program there, as there is in LSE. Exeter University, Edinburgh University... Oxford, Cambridge, you name it. Uh, Georgetown in, uh, in in United States, Saudi Money, etc. So really, I think there are a few things going on here. One could say, well, these are all bona fide institutions where academics have complete freedom of speech. Well, yes or no? Picture yourself as a postdoc, a PhD student, or a or a or a younger academic, a lecturer, etc. You're not you're not really going to want to say or write anything that might put the nose out of joint of a senior academic above you. And unfortunately, as we've seen, the way things are going with academia in this country, it's all about grants and bringing in research income from wherever possible, uh, rather than necessarily quality of publications or the research that's being uh, uh, actually done. So it creates this sort of um, very very slippery atmosphere of self-censorship that that goes on. You may be curious why I've decided to publish this book. Uh, All I will say to you, I have some quite unusual circumstances that have allowed me to write this. But I would say if I didn't have those unusual circumstances, then I probably wouldn't have been able to write this book. Um, A little bit more on uh, on soft power. We've also noticed the Gulf states are well aware of their increasingly uh, piggy-in-the-middle position with regards to international oil and gas industry. A lot of the increased production over the next few years in the Gulf states is earmarked to go eastwards. A lot of the new oil concessions that have signed have been with uh, China, Japan, South Korea, uh, etc. Along with that, although we don't have the military protection aspect yet, though it may develop eventually, especially if the West's influence in the Gulf declines, uh, although we don't have the military aspect, we do have the diplomatic aspect, we do have the cultural links building, we do have the various of, uh, uh, soft powers uh, very much in, uh, in evidence. Moving finally onto the pressures that the Gulf monarchies are facing, Um, This, I suppose, is the the tricky part of the book, the the most difficult part to write. Uh, The first section really looks at the most obvious one, the cracking of this rent pillar, the ability of these Gulf monarchies to keep indefinitely offering this distributed wealth to their untaxed populations, to keep offering the same levels of uh, subsidies, etc. A few points to make. The most obvious is that uh, the uh, uh, oil and gas reserves are are declining. Uh, We don't know how fast. Uh, we've also got the matter of not so much when the oil and gas runs out, but the point at which the Gulf monarchies have to become net oil and gas importers because of their massive rising domestic energy consumption needs. These are very fast-growing economies and quite wasteful economies in many ways due to a lot of mismanagement, especially in Saudi Arabia. So we're really getting to a point where it's not so much however many decades oil and gas Saudi Arabia has left, but more, more a question of when when is the point when Saudi's own domestic needs reach a point where there isn't that surplus to keep selling on the oil market. So in that sense, it doesn't really matter about sustained high oil prices or whatever else. We've seen all kinds of reports over the last few years uh, about how much uh, oil and gas is left to be exported in these countries, ranging from a few years to 15 years to 30 years. Nobody seems to know at the moment. Uh, I'm always uh, always a believer in things happening sooner rather than later, I think the world is moving faster than before. Human race is moving faster. And I think uh, think that point will come much sooner uh, than expected. I think there could be whole PhD topics written on the uh, obfuscation of uh, oil energy uh, statistics in the Gulf at the moment. There's so much smoke and mirrors going on because it's highly sensitive information. And if you remember to the beginning of my lecture, it's so closely connected to the political stability of these countries. You knock out that pillar, they're finished in many ways. Further to that, we have the increase in the size of the national populations. So yes, they're quite small, but they're growing very fast. Uh, The fertility rate is fairly high. It's slowing down, urbanization, modernization, whatever else. But people are living longer because of these fantastic welfare states. So we're getting a very rapidly increasing indigenous populations in the Gulf states. Again, figures are very difficult to lock down. That's because most of the NGOs commissioning this data tend to get it wrong. They tend to be focusing on overall residential populations in the countries. But as I've tried to express in this book, the overall population doesn't matter. You can have millions of expats. It doesn't matter. That population won't be growing. It depends on the economic conditions, etc. People are not having families there. It's the local population that matters because politically they are the only relevant group in uh, in society. Um, further to that, we have uh, the inevitable breakdown in the level of subsidies and benefits that can still be extended to these uh, to these citizens. We've seen many of these cracks appear. Some Gulf states are starting to think very hard about can they still offer the uh, uh, subsidised food prices, subsidised petrol prices, etc. The housing programmes in some cases have had to be scaled back. There are waiting lists. Uh, salary increases that were promised in the wake of the Arab Spring have been held in check and in some cases reversed. Uh, so really uh, uh, the ability to keep, keep on subsidising is very much uh, in question. I'd also collect connect the public sector employment benefit to that one as well. Saudi Arabia has in many ways gotten around a lot of the Arab Spring thus far by dangling all of these carrots including tens of thousands of new public sector jobs ironically in the Ministry of Interior I think is one of the main uh, employers. That of course can't go on. You can't have forever bloating bureaucracies and public sector uh, jobs. Um, We've also got this uh, connected to resources populations and subsidies. We've also got this argument that This increasingly large indigenous population increasingly regards uh, these subsidies as as, as a birthright, as a citizen of a Gulf state, rather than a gift that maybe their uh, parents' or grandparents' generation would have done. After all, if your grandparents lived without air conditioning, were able to meet the ruler personally every Friday afternoon, didn't have a car, etc., then suddenly your life transformed. There was a certain personal connection to this lifestyle improvement now, in increasingly urbanized populations where it's difficult to get the ear of a shake like it used to be, uh, it's much, much harder uh, than before. Um, plus, people, as I mentioned, it's a generational shift. It's a birthright now rather than, rather than uh, some kind of personal gift from the ruler or father to his, uh, to his people. Another um, key structural problem looming for the Gulf states, well, I say looming, it's been looming for years, but it's getting much worse. It's the the problem of voluntary unemployment. Uh, Not too much to say about this. You've all perhaps heard of these various labour nationalisation drives that have been going on in the Gulf monarchies, trying really to get uh, young Gulf nationals, even if they've got university qualifications, to actually seek a meaningful job. Uh, We've got a situation, especially in the smaller, wealthier Gulf monarchies like Kuwait or United Arab Emirates or Qatar, where if the right public sector job hasn't come up, you just wait it out. So you've got tens of thousands of people sitting on the sidelines doing not very much, quite restless, because they're waiting for the dream public sector job to come up. All the while they can rely on substantial uh, welfare uh, benefits. No real way to solve that as far as I can see. More or less everything's been tried. Uh, We had quite punitive measures in the past on companies that were hiring expats. Uh, We had gifts being given to nationals, additions to their salary to try and get them into the workplace. None of it's really worked. We've seen very uh, limited limited improvements. Squandering wealth, uh, perhaps another one can say pathology of a traditional political system uh, with the guardianship of great wealth and resources, is the lack of transparency, lack of transparency over decision-making, over how the money is being spent. Uh, In the book, you will find countless examples of prestige projects, duplicated investments, Various things that would, would make you jump, actually. And if that information was really in the public domain and Gulf nationals were aware of this and what their ruling families were spending on, even though some sections of the population are more indigent, uh, there would be some uh, some shocks, I think. Um, uh, we've had, of course, uh, uh, very much uh, copycat spending, uh, every Gulf state building an airline. We've got certainly an oversupply of airports in the region ever taller skyscrapers many of which are, are quite empty uh, we've got all of these uh, uh, buildings in, uh, around Mecca now which have a very poor uh, occupancy rate uh, we have um, we have the personal wealth of the rulers themselves again this is very difficult to track down Forbes does its best now and then but it's quite difficult but one can say these are among some of the richest uh, families in the world uh, we get little glimpses into this now and then. For example, when BCCI went down in the early 90s, its major shareholder was the Abu Dhabi ruling family. And we had a little insight into the spending habits of the ruling family there. Uh, we've got little insights into the spending habits of the Sultan of Oman. Uh, did you know, for example, he has several yachts, including the biggest yacht ever built in uh, Italy, which has room for an orchestra, a swimming pool, and a helipad? Meanwhile, millions of Omanis are unemployed and really struggling. Bad news when this word gets out, of course, and in the public uh, public domain. Very dangerous. Um, we have poverty and real unemployment. Uh, this, I like to think, is one of the more original parts of the book. Really tries to dispel the myths: the myth that the Gulf monarchies are all rich and the citizens are well off. Far from the case. It's getting worse. We've got wealth gaps growing, due to the inefficient wealth distribution mechanisms, due to the corruption, the squandering, the lack of transparency. We've had great, rulers have faced great difficulty getting money out to their people because they have to navigate through these little fiefdoms, these little mini-empires which various lesser sheikhs and bureaucrats have set up. You're interested in the Saudi case, Stefan Hertog of LSE. That's not Stefan, that's Christian. Stefan Hertog of LSE's uh, book, Princes, Brokers and Bureaucrats, is a great little insight into, into that one as well. So very difficult to really... Uh, stop this wealth gap growing. So we've got to a situation now where we have millions of poor Saudis. There was a great report the other week that thousands of Saudis are living on just the equivalent of a few hundred euros a month. Uh, my own research into Al Hamer in the United Arab Emirates, very poor quality housing, people complaining of poverty, uh, lack, of, lack of any job. So there's real unemployment beginning. You have the wealthier elite in the bigger cities and the wealthier parts of this country holding out for these lucrative public sector jobs. But people out in the less developed parts of the country can't get any job at all. Uh, Plus, if they want a job, they have to come to the richer areas and effectively become labor migrants within their own own state. Um, So particularly noticeable in Saudi Arabia because of the large population. Very noticeable in Bahrain because of the depleted oil and gas reserves and the lack of ability of the ruler to distribute. Uh, Very obvious in Oman, too, where we have... uh, 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 Omanis having to do uh, menial work, uh, noticeable in the poorer parts of the United Arab Emirates uh, as, as well. Uh, other, other pressures, we have this issue of discrimination, uh, statelessness, and sectarianism. This really, I would say, uh, attacks less the political economy pillar of the Gulf monarchies and more the other pillars the political culture one, the religious credentials, the traditional authority, the charisma. You've got rulers who are allowing, and in some cases I would argue, perpetuating sectarian divides in their countries. After after all, if you're a king, if you're an autocrat, just as an early modern European uh, king would wish, you have to be the ultimate mediator. It's in in your interest to have different sections of the population competing with each other for your uh, attention. Uh, We have the problem of stateless people in the Gulf states, of which there are hundreds of thousands. Uh, these are becoming increasingly restless. There have been more riots over the last few years. Uh, we, of course, have the big issue of uh, Sunni-Shia divide in the Gulf states, particularly particular Bahrain, of course, where the revolution has taken on a very sectarian flavor with the destruction of Shia mosques, uh, the expelling of various Shia clerics, uh, etc. Eastern province of Saudi Arabia, uh, ironically the oil-rich uh, region of the kingdom, is also the part of the kingdom which has the most substantial Shia population. Who complain of discrimination in em- employment, they can't get certain public sector jobs, etc. Uh, and these protests uh, by Shia in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, protests by stateless persons in Kuwait, ex- uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, pr- long precede the Arab Spring. It's a building, boiling problem that's never properly been uh, addressed. I remember a couple of years ago, I can't remember his name, but I helped brief our, our, our outgoing ambassador to one of the Gulf uh, states and I mentioned the problem of, of statelessness and I remember he, he dismissed it more or less out of hand which I was quite uh, disappointed uh, about but there are hundreds of thousands uh, uh, of them um, we also have the problem of censorship and limiting expression, I think we can connect this back again to the lack of transparency to traditional monarchy and also to this rentier state argument that wealth can be used to organise things Just as you can bankroll civil society, you can pay for the latest and most sophisticated apparatus to censor and limit uh, expression without necessarily having to have police with riot batons out onto the the streets. Uh, Running out of time, a few words on the mounting external pressures. Uh, We have quite an obvious one here, which clearly is eroding the uh, Islamic credentials and traditional authority of some of uh, some of the Gulf monarchies. Uh, We have uh, the fast, rapid economic liberalization, uh, uh, let's say the hotels, the alcohol, the prostitution that's gone along with that, many of the smaller Gulf states, Bahrain and Dubai. Most noticeably, that's clearly causing tension with the local population who feel they're now strangers in their hometowns. We've also got the interesting case of Mecca in Saudi Arabia where we have these lavish seven-star hotels being built, as you've perhaps seen, the master plan for Mecca is something uh, quite incredible. So the rich will have balcony views, etc. Uh, again, it's part of the, the religious tourism uh, economy, and I can't help but think some elements of the, the Saudi population. Well, I don't just think they've already expressed their uh, concern and disapproval over this. We've also the, got the question of being simply too close to the West in terms of the armaments industry. Uh, the Gulf monarchies spend a vast fortune on, uh, on weaponry from the West. Uh, whether it will ever be used or not is a, is a question for another day. I can't help but think there are giant underground hangars full of unused F-16s and Challenger tanks, etc. Uh, in many ways, part of the deal: you want to have protection from the West, you have to have to spend on this uh, on, on this equipment. Uh, this, of course, has been a problem in the past in Saudi Arabia. We had the Awakening in the 1990s, where religious conservatives were uh, were extremely concerned. About uh, the presence of, uh, of non Muslim troops in the country. We've had other embarrassing episodes. We've had uh, drones being shot, be, uh, drones crashing, and it being traced back to uh, uh, bases in Abu Dhabi. So the United Arab Emirates was allowing, seemingly allowing drones to fly uh, to Afghanistan on, on missions and had not, uh, had not revealed that to its, uh, to its population. We have the stance on, on Iran, which is incredibly antagonistic. Uh, doesn't really have much uh, uh, real, real history t- behind it. Many of the Gulf monarchies enjoyed a close, familial, good trade relationship with Iran. Populations in certain Gulf monarchies are very much tied to Iran in terms of kinship. Again, I think this is part of the uh, dependency on the Western military umbrella. The Gulf monarchies have to, have to play uh, America's game on this one. Uh, Iran, of course, also helped serve as, uh, as the Gulf monarchy's great bogeyman any opposition movement can be put down to being Iran-backed agents. Uh, we have the question of, uh, of Israel, the warm relations between many of the Gulf monarchies and Israel. Did you know, for example, the largest uh, uh, hedge fund set up since the, since the credit crunch was a joint venture between Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Israel? Um, we, of course, have uh, Israeli companies operating in the United Arab Emirates. We've had trade missions in Bahrain, Qatar, Uh, The list goes on. Particularly fascinating, of course, because many of the constitutions of the Gulf monarchies have specific clauses about boycotting Israel, but that's clearly uh, at the ruling elite level being being ignored. We have the question of division and disunity as well. The book looks at the lack of collective security in the Gulf monarchies. They have the Gulf Cooperation Council uh, to provide some veneer of uh, 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 collective uh, security but it's never really amounted to much, and I think it's it's right to say right now the GCC wouldn't be able to uh, really do uh, very much if there was a serious threat. Too much bickering between neighbours, unsettled border disputes, uh, petty one-upmanship when it comes to integrating the economy, where should the central bank be, what should happen with the joint currency. None of that's been solved, and now the Arab Spring is upon them. Finally, in this section, it looks at the problem of interference from abroad and coup d'etat, uh, we said all in the family earlier there need to be these strong dynastic monarchies. The Gulf monarchies are showing serious cracks in that phenomenon too. We have many very elderly leaders who are about to pass away very in the next few years. I imagine in Saudi Arabia we could have three kings in the space of the next 18 months. Uh, each time there's a death and a succession that creates a political vacuum uh, extremely weak for these, uh, for these states. Uh, finally then the coming collapse, the final chapter and the conclusion afterwards which I'll need you to read rather than going to has a section on each of the Gulf states and their experience in the wake of 2011 what it really tries to argue is that the kind of opposition the Gulf monarchies are now facing down has changed in the past it was all about demonising, you had communists of course after the Eisenhower doctrine, you had uh, who else did you have? you had uh, uh, Iranian agents uh, still now of course, you had uh, Muslim Brotherhood Uh, Islamists, Al-Qaeda, any kind of opponent branded as one of these for the consumption of an international audience and the domestic audience uh, as well. Interestingly, uh, there was co-option of many of these groups in the past. Um, uh, Islamists co-opted in Saudi Arabia United Arab Emirates, no longer the case. Uh, Now they're they're thoroughly being demonised because they're the most convenient opponent uh, bogeyman opponent for these states to talk to the West about. Um, we have the question as well of what's happening now with the modernising forces. Uh, I would argue if Huntington was still alive, he'd, he'd love to write a book about this. In many ways we've got forces that can't be co-opted like the ones in the past. You can argue that education, the state can control the syllabus. TV, the state can block channels it doesn't like. Newspapers, the state creates its own, censors the one it doesn't like. Ban books, etc., whatever else. Uh, but now we're starting to get modernising forces, especially connected to the internet, or at least this second generation of internet technologies. Think of the internet up until recently, email, web, blogs. If the state doesn't like it, it can block it, or it can log you accessing it to find out who you are, or it can read your email, or it can post a a propaganda website. It can use that modernizing force to its advantage. But now we're starting to get, especially with social media, this fantastically powerful modernizing force which allows people to connect horizontally to each other to discuss things. And regimes all over the world are unable to really block that link anymore. The old vertical line of communication that used to exist is no longer there. It's been replaced by something something fairly horizontal. So it's a real game changer now for the Gulf monarchies to get their heads around. They've certainly tried to fight the new game. They've hired PR companies to create fake profiles on social media to issue threats to slander people libel etc whatever else creating honeypot websites to get people's details spending a lot on virus technology as well as we had a very embarrassing case the other week where uh, an activist in the United Arab Emirates handed over his hard drive to a to Toronto University who unpicked picked it down to an IP address in a ruler's palace somewhere so extremely embarrassing very powerful technologies being bought for this uh, bought for this purpose As well as these new modernizing forces, we've also got the problem after 2001 of how the Gulf monarchies have initially handled the Arab Spring. Very much a counter-revolutionary force. Uh, Hopefully I don't need to say too much about that because it's fairly obvious. Uh, But we've really had uh, many of the Gulf monarchies coming out in support of uh, the Arab nationalist dictators when they were first uh, struggling. We certainly had Mubarak being offered aid by some of the Gulf monarchies Uh, we had of course uh, reluctant cooperation uh, against Gaddafi probably in return for nothing being done about Saudi and UA intervention uh, in in Bahrain or maybe that's been confirmed now Christian can perhaps uh, uh, follow up on that Uh, we've also had this this interesting issue of the the very high uh, internet penetration rates into the Gulf monarchies I suppose this connects back to the modernising forces uh, argument so here we have really some of the highest broadband smartphone-using rates in the world, in, in, in e- even, even in the developed world, uh, especially in the smaller Gulf states. We're not quite sure yet in North Africa or Syria really what role Internet and social media has played. Certainly it's played some role in organization, but a lot of people were unable to access these technologies. But in the Gulf monarchies... Uh, they, very much, um, they very much are able to uh, access these technologies. I've run out of time, uh, but there's a lot more to say, which I can hopefully talk about in the Q&A. Just to leave you with one last thought, really, I think the next uh, couple of years or so is going to be quite a bumpy ride for the Gulf states. I think we're going to see a mixture of uh, two, two strategies. We're going to see uh, the carrot strategy. We're going to see efforts to keep spending, in Oman's case, promise jobs. In Saudi Arabia's case, create jobs. the United Arab Emirates' case, uh, boost up salaries, etc. We're going to see lots of efforts like this to really keep the majority of the population on side with the ruling elite, despite the need for repression at the same time. So a carrot and a stick. Hopefully not too much of the stick, but some political prisoners will be inevitable. That's begun now in all six of the Gulf monarchies. Uh, we've had... Clearly, we've had a human rights question shadow now firmly over the Gulf monarchies in the international uh, arena. Uh, their credibility very much, uh, very much under question even here in the United Kingdom uh, at, the, at the moment. Uh, for the time being, it seems that the bogeyman images are, are strong enough, that opponents are either uh, scary Islamists who want some kind of theocracy, they're agents of Iran, Uh, Or some other, uh, some other less uh, uh, palatable uh, grouping. So the status quo better than the change. But I think as soon as the lid starts to come off it all, probably in the next 18 months or two years' time, then we're in for some uh, finally for some real change. Thanks, Christian. Well, thank you.
0: Uh, You you asked about UAE and Bahrain. The New York Times um, reported about a month ago that state department officials have said that the UAE actually threatened to withdraw their support from the coalition being assembled over the no-fly zone in Benghazi uh, if the Americans didn't stop talking about the Bahraini uprising. And I always wondered whether or not those two were linked, because the... UAE sent troops together with the Saudis into Bahrain on the 14th of March. Just five days later, the zone began in Libya. So therefore perhaps showing how the concept of intervention can mean two very different things in two very different contexts. Intervention on behalf of the struggle against an autocratic leader in Libya. Intervention on behalf of an autocratic status quo in Bahrain. UAE and Qatar as well being involved in both. So again, this kind of soft power this the fact that they were so useful to giving the fig leaf of our participation to make this intervention with Libya possible in many ways Bahrain seems to have been the kind of the, 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 the questions they were trying to put aside in response for this participation. We have about 20 minutes for questions so we're going to take them in bunches of three so if you could wait for a microphone to reach you, we have stewards and microphones.
1: Perhaps questions relating to the specific countries, which I haven't had a chance to really talk about their experiences. If you
0: wait for a microphone, and we'll take them in three, so there's one at the back there, one at the back there, and uh, one at the end over there as well.
1: If you just wait for a microphone. Freedom of speech and the United Arab uh, Emirates. I have the impression that the Emirates had complete freedom of speech and there were very few restrictions on the media and that foreign newspapers were bought. people had access to the Internet. But you gave the impression there might be some restrictions. If you could elaborate a bit on that, I'd be grateful. Uh, restrictions on freedom of speech in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, I would argue that of, uh, of the six Gulf states, uh, the United Arab Emirates is probably one of the least free. Um, We have 64 political prisoners now uh, who've been detained in the United Arab Emirates. They've been linked to a foreign conspiracy for overthrowing the government. Uh, I'm familiar with some of these gentlemen. Uh, They include lawyers, academics, judges, etc. People arrested last year in the United Arab Emirates for putting forward a petition uh, to the ruler of Abu Dhabi asking for an elected uh, parliament uh, in many ways, it's one of the least free of the, of the Gulf states. You can fly foreign, foreign inspectors. I can't hear. You can,
0: you, can
1: you can buy foreign newspapers. Yes, you can, yes. Uh, however, there have been occasions, even very recently, where if an article appears that's not to the liking of someone, that newspaper can easily be pulped or even the offending page removed. A great example would be uh, a couple of years ago, you remember the Dubai crash, I think it was the London Times. Sunday Times Times was uh, pulped, and uh, Vanity Fair was pulped because it had an article by A.A. Gill, in it. I think, so that can happen too. Uh,
2: Hi, you can't see me, I'm behind a pillar over there. Thank you uh, for your talk. It's it's quite courageous to talk about a topic that's quite unfashionable at the moment, but is very much the elephant in the room uh, in that part of the world. Um, You mentioned that your objectivity comes from your particular position, and I wondered if you could shed a bit more light on that so we can know some more. Thank you. Well, maybe we'll
1: speak a little after at the end.
2: I just have a quick, thank you so much for your talk. And um, I was just wondering, what kind of changes do you see happening in Bahrain in the future?
1: Yeah, Bahrain, of course, is the most uh, tragic. You, you did say three questions at a time, but I'm too impatient. I'm jumping in for each one. Okay. I think Bahrain, of course, is the most tragic uh, example at the moment. Uh, we clearly have a full-scale Arab Spring Revolution taking place here where if we discount this sectarian business, we have the vast majority of the population who who are largely oppressed, uh, living under the yoke of a a ruling family that's uh, uh, um, uh, particularly entrenched now and has really created a powerful security establishment, many expatriates involved in that too. Uh, I think it's really a case of uh, how the rest of the region will go. Uh, The Bahraini people on their own, as we've seen, 50,000, 100,000 on the streets at any one time. This, in many ways, makes it one of the highest per capita resistance revolutions or reforms that's ever been in the region, probably even higher per capita than than Egypt at its height. But the rest of the region, of course, will do do very little about that. Uh, The rest of the world, the international community, because Bahrain is a key ally of the West, uh, we had the unfortunate statements the other way, week that uh, Britain and America are, are the Russia to uh, are the Russia to Syria uh, in their relationship to, to Bahrain. So Bahrain, not much is going to happen there, I think, until something more seriously happens in neighbouring Gulf monarchies. Then we perhaps see some kind of um, uh, some kind of domino effect as the invincibility of monarchy is broken elsewhere, and the fear factor is, is, is uh, the fear barrier is broken. Dr. Davidson, thanks for a great talk, as always. Um, I had a question about Qatar, these countries here specifically. Uh, you were talking earlier about peacekeeping. You know, the, the, A lot of these countries like to present themselves as peacekeepers and mediators. But we've seen now recently, you know, 2011, 2012, a lot of Qatari intervention in Libya and Syria. Could you perhaps elaborate a little bit on what this motivation or the motivation behind this kind of intervention might be? Yeah, um, I think I think Qatar's a a fascinating example and and deserves a a book in its own right. So hopefully, someone in the audience is working on that right now. Uh, I think here we've got an example of having to separate Qatar's uh, uh, foreign policy from the broader regional and the micro-regional. I think we've got a case here where uh, Qatar very much saw political capital from the Arab Spring, especially in North Africa, especially in Syria the ruling families at work could gain enormous legitimacy from support of oppressed Arab people in the region. problem is, when it's been happening on their doorstep just across the road in, uh, in, in Bahrain, eastern province of Saudi Arabia, we've seen very uh, uh, non-uniform coverage of news events, even by Qatar's much-esteemed international Uh, free speech uh, news channel uh, Al Jazeera Uh, and that's that's quite troubling we've seen some efforts made Qatar did broadcast a democracy uh, did broadcast a documentary entitled Shouting in the Dark Uh, but the very week after that uh, I was doing a talk show on Al Jazeera and uh, it was myself a member of the uh, Bahraini government and a Bahraini human rights activist who is well known to some people in the audience She was waiting on her video link-up and I think, unfortunately, the Al Jazeera uh, production team forgot to turn off my uh, earpiece because I heard the conversation. Uh, More or less the Bahraini government uh, spokesman said, I'm not appearing if she's appearing on it too. But I was okay for some reason. Uh, So uh, 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 Al Al Jazeera most firmly censored on that occasion. We've also got the, the problems that have been experienced by the Center for Media Freedom, which was established in Qatar a few years back and its French director uh, uh, left uh, in in, uh, less than favorable circumstances. We have uh, frequent accounts of uh, uh, how uh, the ruling family in Qatar tries to uh, manipulate the the news. Uh, We also have accounts of a few uh, bloggers who have been arrested in Qatar over the last few years. Uh, In many ways, Qatar is, is the safest of the Gulf states because the political economy pillar is just so massive after all if one qatari steps out of line the other few hundred thousand will almost certainly not want to lose their very privileged uh, lifestyle so in many ways qatar is the is the uh, outlier here uh, of the gulf monarchies hi there chris i just wanted to ask uh, the cover of your book you've got i think sheikh sabah of kuwait as the first domino in a row um no no try again who, who was that sorry let me see if I've got it. The first one. Who's I'm oh, sorry. I, I, I thought the first one was the left. King of Bahrain, uh, Prime Minister of Bahrain. Yeah, I do apologise. Yeah. I, I just wondered if there was any specific meaning to the order you've got them in there. That's a very you... good question. Uh, anyone from from uh, Hearst here, John, somewhere at the back, I think. Uh, that that's a very good question. I remember uh, not that I use very not that I use very. Twitter very much, um, despite it being this fantastic modernizing force. And the one thing I never do on Twitter is get involved in, in uh, conversations with people. Uh, but I remember casually logging on once, and finally, an the entire debate was taking place about this cover, complete with people reading into uh, the, the order of the dominoes, who was on the dominoes, the order they appeared in, the number of dots on each domino, numerology going on. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, uh, the honest answer is completely random. I just picked a few uh, pictures. Uh, wh- what I would say is I did try to, uh, to pick uh, Gulf rulers uh, in particular poses. So we have in the middle uh, the Sultan of Oman in Gaddafi dress. They're all based on real photos with the medals pinned. We have the uh, King of Bahrain looking, looking like a gangster, really, with the sunglasses on. We have Sheikh Mohammed, the ruler of, uh, ru- ruler of Dubai, in a top hat and tails, Ascot shaking hands with the queen, probably, and, uh, and the thoughtful, uh, deep-thinking, uh, smartest ruler of the bunch, the emir of Qatar.
0: Any questions over here?
1: Hi. I'd just like to ask a question about pertaining to the Arab Spring's effect on these changes which might occur. Uh, as you've seen, the Syrian revolution is very, being very protracted and we don't know quite know how it's going to end, but it seems there is a lot of support on the ground and people in the Gulf in terms of the ordinary people on the ground. And in the event that Bashar does fall, I mean, do you see this having a catalyzing effect and, and also does it, would it have a limiting effect on how much how much of the stick the Gulf regimes could use in, in terms of oppressing or preventing such changes. Yeah, absolutely. As, as I mentioned, when I began the book, it was very much a political economy study. Uh, by the time I finished the book, of course, the Arab Spring had, uh, had begun, and the book changed into really uh, a discussion of how external factors could also, uh, shape, could, could also impact on the people of the Gulf. Um, I suppose my answer in the book is broken down into three, three things. Firstly, as I mentioned, uh, a fear barrier is broken by the Arab Spring. Um, This this, uh, myth of invincibility of Arab rulers was broken. Uh, Young Gulf Arabs who'd grown up never knowing another president of Egypt other than Mubarak. Gaddafi, of course, having been in power for decades. Their invincibility was gone. So if it could be done there, it could be done somewhere else. Uh, Moreover... Uh, I think after the Arab Spring began, it's now become harder for the Gulf monarchs to keep demonising opponents. As I mentioned earlier, in the past, whenever opposition sprang up in the Gulf states, it was branded as a a bogeyman of the month, the bogeyman of the time, whether that was Al-Qaeda, Muslim Brotherhood, Communists, uh, etc. Um, Now it's harder, much harder to do that, I think. When you're locking people up, who haven't been involved in uh, violent protest, who are academics or bloggers or journalists or whatever else, I think it's much harder to persuade your population uh, that these are bogeymen. I think it's getting much harder to persuade the international community, including the Western powers, that these are bogeymen too. And the third part of the answer, I think Arab Spring has had an important catalyst effect on the Gulf monarchies uh, because it's really... It's really exposed the rulers of the Gulf states for who they really are. So the true colours are starting to come out here. The week that uh, United Arab Emirates and Saudi militarily intervene in Bahrain, we have the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi receiving Bahraini government officials, telling them your security to us is paramount. We have, uh, we have plenty of examples of this. We have uh, economic aid being offered, uh, offered to Mubarak. We have the the business earlier of the reluctant uh, uh, help with intervening in, in Libya, but conditions attached to it. And I think really the people of the region are starting to discuss this now more than ever before. As we were saying earlier, walking over here, there's been so much defamation of royals going on in the last few weeks. It's almost becoming a fashion now to defame a Gulf royal. Uh, I've done it, or I haven't actually, but I'm sure some, some people in the room have done it. And I think for a lot of young people in the region, it feels kind of fun to do this. You can create some Twitter account or fa- Facebook profile, log in in a cyber cafe so your IP address isn't recorded, and just get defaming. And that hasn't really been possible before. And the Arab Spring, I think, has really helped burst that, uh, burst that bubble. I
0: mean, there is the example of the Muhtar Twitter phenomenon in Saudi Arabia alleged insider in the royal family spilling incredibly detailed secrets that can only come from a true insider and having almost a million followers on Twitter reaching out directly to large sections of the Saudi population either a disaffected insider or someone with very good access and they can't figure out who or what he is I've got a question back here
1: I think while the microphone's getting there, th- further to that, one thing we haven't talked about today, but which is really discussed at the book as well, is the prospect of, uh, of elite breakaways. If you, if you go back to Marx again, please excuse the, um, the Marx references. Uh, I'm in LSE after all, so it should be okay. But um, if, if, we go, if we go back to Marx, one, one would expect in the revolution that a section of the elite sees the writing on the wall and moves with the times. And I think we're already starting to see this in the Gulf States. We've had a Kuwaiti sheikh being uh, put under house arrest. We've had uh, a UAE sheikh, a member of the Russell Kramer ruling family, currently in detention. Uh, we've had Saudi dissident uh, princes as well, princesses, many, some of them living in exile. So that's starting to happen too, quite, quite to be expected, of course, if you can see the future uh, uh, ahead of you.
0: Um, hi, I was wondering how you place the increasingly critical art coming out of the Gulf States, for example, Saudi Arabia. Why is it being allowed to tour internationally and grab the headlines? For example, the development of Mecca has been quite a sort of recurrent theme in contemporary art coming out of Saudi Arabia at the moment. Um, why is it not being suppressed?
1: Sorry, why is, not being, why is what not being suppressed?
0: The contemporary art coming out of the Gulf States.
1: Yes. Contemporary art, you mean the political messages that may be included in the, in the contemporary art? They're very
0: explicit p- political yeah, messages.
1: Yeah. That's, a, that's a very interesting question. I think when you're, when you're living in a region which doesn't have access to the usual channels of free speech, uh, where, where you can be censored on the internet, the books you write can be pulped or, or whatever else, I think you become inventive and original and you find other ways to get that message out. So tormented art, uh, uh, poetry, etc., These are perhaps things to watch as well. I think there have been plenty of examples uh, uh, of this. What's what's also interesting to note on that point is many of the international museums that are being brought to the Gulf states, there's a good question of what they will be able to display in their their galleries. Will they be able to display things that may be uh, uh, deemed offensive to to the regime in that, uh, that country? As with the universities that are brought to this region, Will they have true free freedom of speech, or will they be expected to self-censor? Can, for example, an American university that sets, sets up camp in Qatar or Abu Dhabi hire anybody they want, any professor they want? Can they bring any book into the country they want? We don't really know yet. They're still too young.
0: Uh, we're running out of time, so we've got a few questions. I'll bunch them all together. Uh, Zaid, you had one back there. There was one up here on, the, on my right. Uh, you in the front as well, yes, yes. Adil. And then I'm afraid probably we'll have to take the ones afterwards. There'll be a and a After the q Chris will be signing books, so if you want to ask him questions, then we can, we can do that. But we'll just take the last three now before we draw to a formal close. So, Zayed.
2: Hi. Yeah, thank you. You touched on Bahrain, um, and you mentioned earlier on about chinks in the armor of certain Gulf systems. Um, I agree with all the factors that you've mentioned. There, there are sectarian issues. There are issues of, uh, of how wealth has been looked after, etc. But the one issue that I see is crucial in following all of these, these uh, shaykhdoms is um, the issue of rent redistribution. And I wonder how much of the problems in Bahrain can be attributed to the fact that the government just doesn't have the cash that it had in the 80s to hand out. Yeah. Um, I mean, the king of Bahrain's... Uh, pledge was, was about £1,000 a a thousand for every family after the protest last year I mean that's not the kind of rent distribution that was before Nor is it
1: sustainable Yeah, I think in, in many ways that's why Bahrain um, was already before the Arab Spring providing a glimpse into this rather turbulent future for the Gulf States I remember co-authoring an, art, co-authoring an article with this gentleman and it must have been in September 2010 just before the the elections in Bahrain, called Bahrain on the Edge. And that was written three months before, four months before the February 14th uh, uprising. So I think in many ways it was a glimpse into this slightly ugly future of what happens when the wealth distribution and the subsidy pillar is no longer uh, really there. I think Oman is going to catch up with this soon. I think if you look at the situation in Oman last year, uh, the ruler more or less got away with it. There were some protests. There were four deaths various of the problems but the promises were made the minimum wage, the jobs going to be created etc but of course the Sultan of Oman has quantified his, his measures if he doesn't manage to, to uh, create them then the people will hold him to that
2: Hi Chris, uh, thanks for your talk. I've got two short questions if you don't mind uh, the first being that um, in the United Arab Emirates we've seen the President and Vice President of the Student Union being held in the current crackdown and with credible allegations of torture persisting, I'd like to ask how, how much will the values of our universities have to be abused before the funding is questioned by universities such as the LSE and the others that you mentioned? Uh, secondly, I'd like to ask you um, how you think the case of the 64 will be like, play out in the UAE, given that they're currently being detained and tortured? Um, and specifically on that... I'd like to say that they've been accused of having a military wing, which is incredible, given the people detained, the judges and human rights lawyers, as you mentioned. And I'd like to know how you feel that's going to play out domestically and internationally over the coming months.
1: Thank you. Thanks. Um, I guess the hardest question came in last. Um, I, think, I think really on that, on that first note, uh, time is up for the uh, hiding behind the shield that the United Arab Emirates is, uh, the, the current regime that is, is a progressive regime. Uh, uh, decent uh, state, especially when it comes to um, uh, British, American, foreign universities uh, setting up camp there or receiving funds from these um, from these countries. I think we have enough enough evidence now uh, that there's no uh, system of fair trials in the United Arab Emirates. This can be uh, abused uh, at, at at whim. Uh, we clearly have peaceful dissidents being incarcerated not being not even facing trial in some cases being held in in communicado and other extreme cases as I mentioned before we have lawyers judges students the president and vice president of the UAE students association uh, we had uh, a foreign university a French university last year which initially uh, claimed that an Emirati member of staff uh, wasn't one of theirs when he was taken as a political prisoner they later had late to clarify he was when I think it was Reuters, began interviewing students from the campus and saying, yes, he taught us the other day. Um, So extremely embarrassing tight spot now, which we've really got to watch for these big name Western campuses that have set themselves up in these uh, autocratic states, which which I think have in many ways voluntarily uh, opted out of uh, international uh, human rights uh, conventions and norms. Uh, as to the situation in the United Arab Emirates, as to the, as to the 64, as it were, United Arab Emirates is all about conditioning the population for, for the news when it's finally released. We saw this with the prisoners the other year. Uh, they were finally, uh, um, I think the, the authorities tried to look for some kind of charge to pin on them, didn't really get it in the end, had to release them, release them uh, uh, on National Day so the ruler could, could appear magnanimous. That was part of the rulers' largesse, but of course note that their convictions were not quashed, so they were simply guilty men who were pardoned. As to the current huge number of political prisoners, which if if you think about it, uh, per capita of adult male Emiratis of working age is an extremely high political prisoner per capita rate. I'm interested in per capita, as you can can see, I think it really matters with these smaller countries. Um, again, I think we 're being conditioned we 're being conditioned uh, to believe that these uh, these gentlemen are part of some kind of uh, foreign conspiracy or foreign plot or potential armed resistance in the country as as you and others in, in, in the in the room know, the United Arab Emirates is an extremely uh, peaceful co- uh, country, so this really uh, beggar 's belief. I suspect there will be some kind of uh, uh, charge of, of this nature made. But I think they will be released at some point, probably on a key, uh, a key day, a religious festival or, or a good old national day, uh, which will allow the ruler to step, step back and look uh, reasonably good in the eyes of uh, some of his people. Um, gentlemen, we question at the front. No, no.
0: Okay, well, two then. Just two get the mic.
1: First. You mentioned that there is a currently crackdown on uh, activists in the uh, United Arab Emirates and how do you think uh, this collapse will occur in the United Arab Emirates because presumably uh, I think is the most neutral one out of all of them uh, the inclines to the Western ideology comparing
0: uh, to Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia and stuff. How do you think this will happen? What, what's going to be the trigger?
2: Yeah, I think, I think, I think that's a and good... Do you
1: support th- such an uh, uh, uprising to occur yeah. in the United Arab Emirates? You just give do, we'll do this dear. Yeah.
0: Thank you very much for an excellent presentation,
1: Dr. Davidson. Um, you mentioned a forthcoming political vacuum that may emerge um, in face of aging leaders in, in countries like Saudi Arabia. Where do you see young, Western educated, bicultural heirs figuring in all of this? Mm-hmm. Um, and just, if you don't mind, just another quick one. Um, we were speaking of education. If we take the Emirates, for example, where do you, I mean, we have a lack of, say, national nationals or Emirati professors um, very difficult to fire etc. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah. Thank you. Um, first of these questions, uh, very good one about United Arab Emirates. I think we can look at uh, Qatar and the United Arab Emirates as by far the most stable of these Gulf monarchies. Uh, in these two countries, because of this uh, wealth distribution potential, you can keep on board most of your, most of your population. So I don't think we're going to quickly get to that tipping point in Qatar and, and uh, United Arab Emirates where the majority of the population are concerned about political prisoners. They know a few people disappear now and then and that there's no fair judicial process but as long as their lives are reasonably good they'll keep their head down. That's certainly the case in Qatar for the foreseeable future. United Arab Emirates though is a rich poor country. Most, most people visit Abu Dhabi, Dubai hundreds of thousands of UA nationals living in very different conditions to that if you take if you go to the north of country, country Indian Ocean coastline etc very different very different story there. No coincidence that a lot of the detainees are not from the two wealthiest emirates of Abu Dhabi and Dubai. A couple of them are, and I think in many ways they 're the scariest to the regime because they live in big houses, big cars, etc. If they're willing to uh, uh, go to prison, then, then who else might? I think also you've got to look at, got to look at, look at Kuwait as well. We saw the videos of the, the huge protests, 30,000, 40,000, doesn't really matter how many, but people, Kuwaiti nationals, who are probably quite well off. You saw quite, I was quite amused to see some of the cars driving past in the protests, four-wheel drive land cruisers, <laughs> glittering skyscrapers. These are not the revolutions of the angry tenements of Damascus or... Tripoli or uh, or, or Cairo. Uh, What I think think might happen is, it's all about the myth of invincibility of Gulf monarchy being broken. In many ways they're only as good as the weakest link in the chain. So Saudi Arabia, which in many ways I think is the most brittle of these countries, the largest, the most uh, most potential for something seriously going wrong in the near future. When that happens, the smaller Gulf states on its border, then they're in trouble, I think. Um, The question... Uh, was about UAE again, or yeah, in the ruling family. Yeah, uh, interesting. Here um, we see in a lot of the Gulf monarchies, we have uh, we have younger members of the family who uh, speak very good English, uh, who are uh, being groomed for succession, etc. Seem very moderate, go down very well in Buckingham Palace or wherever else they. They go, naming no names except uh, Bahrain. Uh, I think we've got to be careful here to view these as genuine reformers. Uh, part of the regime's survival strategy, of course, is having to have different tolerated opposition within the institution of the ruling family. Bahrain's case, very small ruling family. Uh, to think that the Crown Prince really acts independently of the Prime Minister, I think, is a bit naive. I think what we're also going to see is the more protests happen in the Gulf monarchies. The more power will shift back to the old guard conservatives who control the military and security establishments. We've seen that in Bahrain. Abu Dhabi, very interesting one, because our young Western educated crowd seemed to be the most saber rattling of, bu- of the bunch, with the Crown Prince, of course, having set up his uh, mercenary force of uh, Colombians and South Africans uh, somewhere in the desert.
0: Some people already have said that on Sunday in Kuwait the true revolutionary spirit was that Kuwaitis who were so keen and willing to drive everywhere were so willing to take part in the protest that they were parking their cars and walking for miles to join the demonstrations. So that could be something. We have uh, copies of the book outside if this has whetted your appetite for more. And Chris would be happy to sign copies as well. But uh, beforehand, if you join me in thanking him for an excellent lecture? Thank you.